Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 191 with my guest, Matt Timmon. Matt was a former SOCI student from about, I think from 2013 is when he was there, 2012 or 13. Um, and, you know, Matt has been somebody who's very forthright about issues with mental health and depression and anxiety. And I, I really wanted to talk with Matt because I deal with some of those issues myself. And it was nice to catch up with Matt and see what he's working on now. He now works for VIP Kid out of uh, China. And he's teaching from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. every day. And it was uh, just really great to catch up with Matt. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I certainly did. Without further ado, this is Matt Timmon. Enjoy. Bye. Well, let's gavel this to order. Matt Timmon, um, I appreciate you doing this. I am very grateful that, uh, you know, we you we are connected today because you reached out after I put something on Facebook, just sort of a not, not like a, a call for scores or anything, but just like who... Who wants to talk about stuff? Like, I I think I post the. I generally, if you see posts like that for me, that means I've had generally a terrible day, and I I think I overreact to comment threads, and I just am like, screw it, I want to talk to people. I hate comment threads, and I appreciate you reaching out. And I'm just, you know, you are you came to Soci. What year were you at Soci? Uh, 2013. 2013. All right, yeah. and that's just long enough ago that. I think I can I can admit something to you that even though you were technically a student of ours at SOCI, like we were young enough where like we just couldn't believe that anybody got in the room room with us to do anything, and because we weren't that much older than all of you, and it was like now I, you know I can look at you you're like an adult human with like a job and you're you have a career and you're like working and doing things and. Anyway, just to say, like, I'm going to just assume that that Matt Timmon we met then might have been a completely different person, and I want to talk to you about yeah. sort of your, your journey since then. Um, I mean, what, is there anything in particular? I have some questions for you. Like, you know, I see your background, and I know that you teach in Beijing. Well, you're not in Beijing, but you teach remotely, I'm guessing, right? Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about how you got, all got into that, but I'm curious what you wanted to talk about today. Is there anything in particular on your mind that, that you want to chew the fat on? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you, you mentioned talking about just like mental health, mental mm -hmm. health is something that I really, I try to be pretty open about. Um, and I think it's important that we be open about, especially in, in music, um, there, you know, the music community is a pretty open community, I feel like, mm -hmm. but there, I, I definitely still run into stigma about mental health. Um, especially as most of my performing is, uh, is orchestral playing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I feel like I, I, I love the orchestral percussion community, but I still feel like compared to other areas, it's still much more closed off mm. as far as what we do and don't talk about. Do you want to elaborate um, on that a little bit? I mean, I think I agree. I, you know, I, I, I have my own thoughts. Uh, it's based on my own experience that again, my, my experiences aren't proof that anything is a certain way. It's just my own personal experience with something. And then yeah. you're trying to tease out like, what are the, like, I love orchestra playing, like playing, playing Mahler two when I was in grad school. Good night, Irene. Like I'm happy to just sign <laughs> off and be like, good to go. Played bass drum with an organ and a massive thing with a choir. Like it was totally great. But to me, the path to orchestra playing was always the thing that was the like the roadblock for me. And I'm curious for you, yeah. like, why do you why why do you see things the way you do with the orchestra world? Uh, I mean, you know, 
the pandemic has been obviously negative in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that it did force me to do is because like before the pandemic, like all of my income was from freelancing. Uh, like I play um, before the pandemic. I like, I, I live here in Tucson mm-hmm. and I sub with the symphony here mm-hmm. and like, I sub with the opera in Phoenix and I play with Flagstaff Symphony and Sierra Vista Symphony. And mm-hmm. I am principal of an orchestra in Northern California and section with an orchestra in Southern Oregon. And I think that says a lot about <laughs> what like this has become. It's like, I was running myself ragged. Like I did things that I realize having like a year of time in between it, mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't have been doing like I, I drove one time in a snowstorm overnight from a concert in Flagstaff to a rehearsal in Northern California, because like I felt, uh, I, it, it's been instilled in me so much that like I have to, you know, I got to grind. I got to go. I got to do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really healthy. <laughs> well, it's, it, I mean, that's, I, I, I'm, I didn't have exactly that path, but like, I know, I, I know what the grind is and my particular grind. Like I did a lot of freelance stuff when I was in college and a little bit when I graduated, I, I joined. So right out of grad school. So my particular situation, I was very fortunate to have been sort of plucked out of the, the track that I think a lot of people have to stay in, which is the orchestra job world or the, the college teaching route. I mean, I was a music, yeah. ed, I was a music ed major. And even though my, my teacher, Larry Snyder, he was very supportive, but the overall culture at the school was one of like, not, not just even at, at Akron, but just in the, the larger higher ed world in general is like college orchestra or solo playing. Yeah. Oh, you want to teach high school? Well, why would you want to do that? Or you want to teach elementary school? Like, why would you want to do that? And I always felt to myself, like, don't those people need the best teaching? Like, why why are we why are we putting all the focus on the college kids? They're basically those cakes are baked already for the most yeah. part. You know, like, shouldn't we be talking to fifth graders about John Cage and Steve Reich and Caroline Shaw and you know uh, Su Yun Lia and like all of these people that are in my world? Like, let's talk to them because that means in twenty years college education is going to look way different, you know? Yeah. But the, just the, there's certain grooves I think that you can get in and I'm empathizing with your grind. I mean, for you, like when you, when you, cause the grind for so stopped pretty abruptly a year ago as well. Like it was like we were touring and the last thing we did was in France. I remember flying back and we got, I got puked on by some kid behind me who was like 19 <laughs> years old, had never flown internationally and was oh, getting God. free, free wine the whole time. It was like, well, this is great. I can drink for free. And he just puked all over me. And I was like, coronavirus is becoming a thing. I just got vomited on an international flight. Like how this is ridiculous. And I get home and then it's just like game over. Right. Yeah. For you, what, I mean, the grind sucks, but like, what, what are you not going to return to when you come? Like if ever things are returned to some normalcy, like for you, what are the things that you learned? Like, Oh, that's, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I think that it's, 
um, saying no to some things. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I, uh, this, this whole thing, you can see my wonderful closet. Mm Uh, uh, this wasn't, like, it's been something that's rolling around in the back of my head for years. Um, just because, like, I went to high school and then, uh, actually worked with at, I, I worked in retail pharmacy for like mm. 10 years, um, between like, or seven years, all of my undergrad and all of grad school. Mm. And I worked, uh, I worked with a guy I went to high school with who we both went to the same undergrad. He got a double degree in sociology mm-hmm. and English, and then he did a master's degree in education. And after he was done, he, uh, he got a job teaching English as a second language in South Korea, and he was gone. Mm. Um, and he lived in South Korea for, I think, maybe five years um, teaching English. And I, I uh, we didn't really talk that much, but, like, everything that I saw from him that, like, one, he was happy with, with like, what he was doing, mm. and two, um, I, I think that the kids seemed very appreciative of mm-hmm. him being there. Mm. Um, and it, it was something that it seemed like he was enjoying himself and also doing something that was having a positive impact. Mm. Um, and that was something that kind of rolled around in the back of my head um, for a long time as like, you know, if I, if I need to not play, um, or if it, this just becomes untenable, Mm -hmm. then this is something to look at. And, um, it was, the pandemic kind of forced my hand. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, uh, like I did, I did a certification, a, a, a certificate for, um, teach English as a foreign language. Mm-hmm. I did it all online through the University of Arizona mm. um, while I was unemployed, while I was on unemployment. Um, and then I finished it at the... This just makes me think that the world is a very weird place because like, I, I finished it at the end of November, beginning of December. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I finished it, like I didn't pass my final portfolio the first time. And, um, I actually posted in a Facebook group for a a podcast that I listened to a movie podcast Mm -hmm. and, uh, a guy who teaches English in Quebec, like helped me with my materials Mm -hmm. to get that done. Um, but like I finished that at the end of the year and I, uh, I started teaching. I teach for VIP Kid, that is a, a Beijing-based company, mm-hmm. and I started doing that in January. Um, so I, I've been doing, and that's that like, life. and you're and you're teaching at like you said prior to sort of gaveling the story that you were teaching from one to six a.m. Yeah, uh, it's it, it works on because we're independent contractors. It works on a booking system. Mm-hmm. So like they book classes and you're trying to, you know, um, 
cultivate a following of students so that you just have regular bookings all the time. Got it, got it, okay. Um, I'm getting towards that direction. Uh, I think that I have like 10 regular students so far, which I guess is pretty good. Um, But yeah, it means that my schedule isn't regular. Mm -hmm. And it's usually I'll get up I'll go to sleep at like nine and then wake up at midnight and then teach for five hours or so and then go back to sleep. So it's, um, that's that. I mean that as somebody like I, I'm the older I get, the more I know, like in the morning I can wake up and be like, today's going to be a good day. Like I know, I know when my, like, I know that like, okay, I just need to have coffee for the next two hours and read the news. And then I'm going to be super productive from 11 to 3. Like, I just know that about myself when I wake up in the morning. I can never imagine being productive from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. and, and having to do that. And I'm, I'm always, like, what I love, my favorite part of your, like, if I was going to, like, I'm sort of being a, like a peeping Tom on your career just on Facebook. And, like, I love seeing you, like, with a cup of coffee and being like, well, students four minute late made a tune. Oh, yeah. Like, my, like my... Holding, holding your massive cup of coffee and it's like 3 a.m. is the timestamp. I'm just like, oh my God. Like, I'm just sort of out like a light watching, you know, World War II documentaries at that time. <laughs> I don't know. Like, part of it is that. Uh, it, it's it's different when I have like I think my oldest student I've had is fifteen, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a different thing. That's just more of like uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. It's more of them talking, less of me talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the little kids, like it's almost impossible not to be like you, you got you got to have <laughs> energy. I remember like the first day that I I was teaching, I wasn't really sure what to expect. <laughs> And I like I go through the same spiel like every class if it's a new student it's like mm-hmm. my name is teacher Matt what is your name and they'll tell me I'm like how old are you um, and I remember like one of the first kids was like I was like how old are you and they're like I'm five years old I'm like cool and he's like how old are you <laughs> I'm like thirty uh, two he's like okay. <laughs> he just and wanted to know kid, he just wanted to set up the sort of like yeah. you can ask me questions i can ask you questions too yeah i i the same day i had a kid who i was like i was going through the spiel and i'm like how old are you and he's like i'm six i'm like cool and he's like are you a dad and i was like what and he's like are you a dad and i'm like no and he's like okay <laughs> <laughs> I love the sort of like the thought this is like I, I think if soap percussion just dissipated tomorrow I would get recertified in education and go teach 5th and 6th grade band because they were the kids like that age group they all at once the like the answer that's in their head is just like well this is the answer you know but like yeah. if you tell them they're wrong they're like okay like, 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 and just like the asking questions, fifth graders, I'm, I'm curious, just culturally, is this a thing, um, only in the United States or is it sort of graft onto every other culture when they're, when they're that age is like, you're like, how, what did you all think of that piece? And they all raise their hand. You pick on one. He's like, my dad has a red shirt, you know, oh, <laughs> you're like, my, it's, my it's, dad has a guitar with three strings. And you're like, you answered a question with an answer to you that was absolutely spot on. 
but I think you heard a different question. <laughs> yeah, it's that's just it's kids. Okay, all right. <laughs> like, no, like, um, I, I, I had a new student last night, and I'm always a little bit, um, off when it's a new student because, like, I don't. Besides the things of like, I don't know what their personality is going to be like. Mm-hmm. It's also like, uh, I have to think about like my talking speed. Like, I don't know if what their level is so maybe i need to speak slower and Mm -hmm. maybe i can speak faster whatever um maybe they understand you know sentence frames that i can ask them like what is this what is the difference between and maybe they can't Mm -hmm. um but i had this this kid (laughs) and he was obviously like he understood what i was talking about he we're just kind of booking along and at one point, he, like, grinds everything to a stop because he wants to know, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 32. Do you have any siblings? I'm like, yeah. Oh, how big is your family? And then, like, he's asking me all these questions, and then he, like, turns to his mom and asks her how old she is. <laughs> and he's like, my mom is 37. I'm like, Cool. He goes, I like you. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just like he's got a list of things, and he's like, if I if 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 teacher Matt can work through these with me, we're cool. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's got some demands. Yeah, well, that's good. I think as a student, it's okay to know where your where your lines in the sand are, and uh, yeah. you know, no matter how trivial they may seem to you, it's okay to sort of be like, we're gonna meet in the middle on this. Like, what what um. I don't want to. I don't want to sort of belabor the mental health thing, but I'm curious for you. Like in the pandemic, what? This is another time when I think we, as a society, like you know, we talk about mental health as being this thing that kind of is like we should be more thoughtful about it, and we should we should be open about it and talk about it, and not stigmatize. And that's easy to say for people who have never experienced it prior to COVID. And I think I think everybody experiences some sort of mental illness, whether they know it or not, that that's what's happening. I think everybody's on a spectrum somewhere there. But the, the pandemic, I'm fairly confident, is the first time for humanity, for everybody who's alive now, where we're all actually, we all have experienced the same trauma, not the same level. You know, some of us have gotten sick, yeah. some of us haven't, some of have lost people, some of us haven't, but we've all been forced inside we've all had to wear masks at the grocery store and feel like you're going to get sick and die and like we've all read the news so in a sense it's like welcome to the club everybody this is what this is what depression feels like honest to god like in in may and june like for me when like a friend of ours lost their son not to covid but to something else and i was like that was about as low as i've been bro like so percussion wasn't working that much we were all on zoom all the time all of a sudden I was just sort of like every I was flabbergasted that everybody else was having such a hard time and then for me personally just coupling that on top of the already crushing anxiety I feel just to get out of bed in the morning like I'm curious for you like what, is anything I'm saying like remotely on base here or uh, am I alone here um I um I have a very very long history of of like mental health problems mm-hmm. um going back to 
uh, I don't know, like I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, like I started having anxiety attacks when I was like, I don't know, seven years old, mm-hmm. eight years mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't have a diagnosis until I was in my undergrad. Mm. It was like, uh, I guess, 12 years ago, 13 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and, and I, I've kind of been on and off medication ever since. Um, the pandemic, however, presented me with I, how you're talking about, like, everyone is kind of doing this shared trauma now, and uh, we're all kind of dealing with mental health problems in different ways, because I already had a pretty high baseline of anxiety mm-hmm. um, and, and depression issues. Um, that's when it decided to just go full tilt. Um because I, uh, you know, besides the pandemic, like, like I also I suddenly lost all income completely, mm-hmm. and because of how none of us were prepared for this, I, like I didn't get on unemployment until I don't know three months in, four months in, mm-hmm. um, because like nothing was working, so. Uh, it was, I think, in May, April or May. Like, I've, I, I, I think that there's a a medical, not much of a medical difference between like anxiety and panic attacks. I'm not really sure. I've yeah, talked I'm, to my psychiatrist about it. I'm not um, sure either. And like, I'm curious for you when you when you say you have an anxiety attack. Like, how does it? How specifically? Because this is the other thing. It's different for everybody. Like. Yeah. How does it manifest for you when you say anxiety or, or an anxiety attack? Like, how does that manifest for you? Uh, when I'm talking about my anxiety attacks, I'm thinking about things that have triggers. Um, I know I have one very specific trigger, and uh, which is dying. Uh, so, hi matt have we met i think i think <laughs> me too bro that's all i'm talking to my therapist about. Yeah. i was like why am i afraid of dying like, well you shouldn't um, be because it's gonna happen you know <laughs> and it's uh like my wife uh doesn't have any history of anxiety or mm-hmm. i mean she has anxieties but you know not like there's something wrong with my brain kind of thing mm-hmm. right um and i always try to tell her like um, like my anxiety attacks are like, if I know, if I know the trigger is there, but I'm not thinking about it, it's like a closed door mm-hmm. and I know that the door is there, but I'm not looking at it. And kind of like, if I'm kind of on edge, like I'm looking at the door, but it's not open. And if it's like, it's go time, like the door is open, I'm aware of what's going on. And like, I start getting to like the fight or flight response mm-hmm. um, because my brain is just whirling and can't stop thinking about this idea. And uh, eventually it will turn into an actual thing where I get, you know, the hit of adrenaline and start freaking out. I love that you use, I love the analogy of the door being open. Cause like I, as you were saying, it's like, Oh, I have my own too. Like for me, yeah. there was, I remember seeing, do you remember, I think it was like 2000, 2005, there was the tsunami in Thailand, in Jakarta. Yeah. And um, 
I remember seeing videos of that particular, like of a tsunami, like the the ocean recedes, right? It goes away. Yeah. And like the ocean is the most, is like one of the scariest things in the world to me. I don't know if that says I have a fear of my mother, but like, like there's the ocean is a very, like, that's an intense thing. Right. And there's a lot of sort of psychological, um, uh, symbolism that I think people put on that. Right. So for, but then like people walked out yeah, like the seabed. And I was just like, no, 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 no. Like, and for me, when I have anxiety to me, it's like this weird relief coupled with, I know with what's coming. Like I, I, for me, it's like, it's like I'm sitting on a beach, everything's great. And then the, I look up and the ocean's gone. I've been reading my book for an hour and I look up, the ocean's gone and it's all at once like, Oh, thank God that thing's gone. But then I see people walking out and like that for me is the, like, I got to get out of here. Like there's just something coming. It's not real. Like there's not a real danger. Right. That's the thing with anxiety. It's like, there's nobody really on the other side of that door. It's just your brain. And this is an evolutionary thing. I mean, this is what has kept human beings alive. The fear of getting stomped by a woolly mammoth, the fear of dying because of attack from the neighboring village, the fear of, you know, somebody has a common cold, walks into your village, 15, 20 people die. Like, you don't know why. Now, all of a sudden, you're afraid of everyone who's wearing a specific, that exact headdress that that person was wearing. Like, that's that's anxiety, you know, and yeah. that stuff is an evolutionary sort of thing in our brains that helps us run from fear, except we don't need it that much anymore. <laughs> Yet yeah. it's still there just being like, come on, Matt, we got to go. There's some shit on the other side of that door. Yeah. And you're like, I'm just talking about ESL, some kids in Beijing right now. Leave me alone. Like, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I... Um... Uh, what happened in April for me though was like the rules went out the window. Yeah, and I guess that uh, when I've talked to my psychiatrist about this, she's like, "This is more associated with like full blown panic disorder, hmm. where there isn't a trigger anymore. Like it can just." I was um, the first time this ever happened. I was just sitting at our kitchen table. My wife had already gone to sleep. And I'm just, like, sitting at my computer, like, eating something and, like, watching a video on YouTube. And all of a sudden, it was just, like, full-blown adrenaline. Like, my heart started racing, and it just kept on coming. It kept on coming, kept on coming. And I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um... Like, my heart just kept on, my pulse kept on getting higher and higher and higher. And, uh, like, I woke up my wife, and I'm like, you have to call the ambulance. You have to call the ambulance. So I'm like, and, like, we had, the fire department came out. It's COVID, very early COVID. <laughs> so, like, firefighters are, like, very hesitant about mm -hmm. talking to me or doing anything. Um, but they're just like, your heart's fine. I'm like, okay. And they're like, you could go to the hospital, but like, we don't think that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Like, since your heart's okay. I'm like, all right. And like, that's when I found out from them, like, this was like a full blown, like, panic attack. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually spent <laughs> maybe a month, two months where like, I was no longer afraid of dying. I was afraid of having another panic attack mm -hmm. where like, that was my main fear. 
mm-hmm. because I had, you know, you 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 said about like none of none of the anxieties are like not actively going to hurt you right now, like, but this like that was replaced by something like was actively hurting me right now. Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to be. I don't want to be flipping about that. But it, what I mean is that like. No. It's legitimate no, to be. I a, didn't think you were. No, no, no. I, but it's like it's just for somebody who else is listening. And, and like for me, that's the thing is, is like if there's a let's say there's a like a real size bear outside my house, that's a legitimate reason to have your heart rate up. Yeah, because it's going to try to. I mean, it's a thing that's in real time happening right there. My panic attacks when I have them, I feel like my heart is burping. Like it doesn't race real fast. It just feels like my heart takes like. Bloop. And it like does this weird like and it makes me, it feels like my heart's burping. That's the only way I can describe really? it. Really? Yeah. And it it does quicken, but it's just like it's really disorienting, and it makes me feel like like I remember being on the road with so, and this was three years after my dad died, and for me, my dad was the, is the trigger. Like he died of Lou Gehrig's disease, and yeah. so now I have this fear that every time my finger twitches, I'm like ALS, I'm dying. You know, like also not rational, but. Um, I was sitting in a restaurant in Minneapolis, Minnesota with So, Ain Gordon, who's a director that we were working with, Emily Johnson, who's a choreographer. We're all at this big, this like old steakhouse, like, like mafia steakhouse in Minneapolis. And everybody's like, everybody's great drinking. And I just remember sitting there feeling, and my heart was just like, boop, boop. And, and I just got up and left. I didn't even tell anybody I was leaving. I did the old Irish exit and yeah. just left. Went back to my hotel room. Didn't even tell anybody. Like, that is not me. Like, but it was the only thing I could do yeah. to remedy the situation in that moment. And um, I think it's that that fear. Like, yeah, it, again, like the panic wasn't the problem. It was the like, I don't ever want to have to get up and leave the room. What happens if that happens on stage? Yeah. I mean, if I'm doing that during music for Pieces of Wood, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a dead man. That means I can't do my job. That means I can't pay my bills. Like, if I can't, if I don't know when this is going to happen... Yeah, I should. I don't know what I should do, you know. And that fear, you know, it's performance anxiety. All of those things are part of it, but it's, you know, I can walk on stage and sight read at Carnegie Hall and have zero fear. Yeah. In fact, I'd prefer to do that than have to go to therapy and talk about my dad. Like that's that's how we, that's how messed up my 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 sort of internal trauma is. Is like yeah yeah, put up any music, I'll sight read Autumn Island at. Carnegie Hall, I'll sight read Merlin. Put it up. I don't care. <laughs> like that's easier than than anxiety, you know. Yeah. I mean I I totally know what you mean, like, about not wanting it to happen like not wanting it to happen again, not having like I for some reason or another, uh for a number of years have fought taking medication. Mm. And I think it was because like I had some bad experiences with it, like very bad side effects. Do you mind? Are you, I mean, I listen, there's HIPAA laws and all that. I know everybody's comfort level with talking about medical records is different. And please just, if there's something you're not comfortable with, but like, I'm curious if like, what medications were you on? If you're comfortable talking about them? Um, I was on a very long time ago. I was on, I, I started on Lexapro. That's what I'm on right now. And, um, that worked really well for me, mm-hmm. but I was also like an 18 year old kid. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, after a while I was like, is this working? 
So like they put me on a different medication and, um, I may have been on Zoloft after that. Mm -hmm. I know that they put, put me on Wellbutrin and Wellbutrin made me really sick. I had Wellbutrin too. Like I, so I was, I've been on Lexapro since probably 2012. Like after that panic attack in Minneapolis, I called my doctor and she was like, I was like, my heart's burping. I'm dying. She's like, you're not dying. You're having one of the most common things that a human being can have, which is a pain. She was just like very, she was very nonchalant about it. I was like, baby girl, I'm over here dying in Minneapolis steakhouses. So yeah. you need to take this a little more seriously. And, uh, but, but she put me on Lexapro initially. Um, that was a godsend. And then I went off of it. I had a good couple years and I was just like, I don't want to be on medication if I don't have to be. I didn't have any side effects, but so with my psychiatrist, we, we went off of it for about six months and, that was when the Harvey Weinstein Weinstein thing blew up. That's when Trump came on the scene. And like, I just like society seemed to sort of blow up in a way that I hadn't maybe, maybe the Lexapro was sort of making me ignore some of the stuff in society, but like yeah. coupled with going off of it, all of the societal trauma happening at this, at that particular moment, I bottomed out and realized that I just like, I think I'm addicted to Lexapro too. Like, I don't think I can, function and so they put me on wellbutrin a little bit but that like made me feel like God, i had really bad dry mouth and also just made me feel like i'm ready to go and it's like i don't yeah that's a different version i'd rather be a like sort of like borderline lethargic than like rpms at like three million rpms every second and so yeah. I, I ended up just going off of, of wellbutrin and, and just lexapro has been the sort of steady as she goes thing for me i um i didn't start again until I don't know, November, like that's how much I fought it. Like I had a serious panic attack in May mm -hmm. and then I like waited mm -hmm. for five months, six months. It's generally uh, like, you know, whenever you get a gangrenous tumor on your leg, it's generally good yeah. to wait five months before you see a doctor for some Neosporin. <laughs> I am um, like, it got bad to the point where, uh, I had a panic attack while driving. Oh, jeez, yeah. Um, and also, it just started. It started happening daily, where I would just be like sitting, doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Like I remember one of the last times before I saw a psychiatrist again, um, <clears throat> I had taken my car to get work done, and my wife drove me to pick up my car. I drove my car home. I'm sitting in the living room, and we are just talking about like what are we gonna have for dinner and suddenly i'm having a panic attack mm -hmm. and it there was no reason it's just like okay like this i can't control this with wishful thinking like i have to like my brain does not is not working how it's supposed to be can i ask you like what i mean one of the things what i've been asking myself like why is why why am i so stubborn with some of this stuff like why do i think why do i think if i've got like you know high high cholesterol that a doctor can be like you should work out and eat more vegetables and be like okay like but with my brain like it's who i am like my 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 cholesterol isn't me yeah <laughs> you know my brain is me that's how i talk that's how I play. That's when I smile at somebody, some stranger in the audience, like during a show, like all of that is me. 
and the idea that like I feel like I you know I got control over me, I can fix me, but I think admitting that I can't is actually one of the hardest things for me personally. Just to be able to be like, no, I need medication, or no, I need to go to therapy. Did Did you ever have the? Um, maybe this is different for me because like. I have my lifelong buddy depression hanging out with me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that for some reason after a while, like I had times before I started on medication before that I, w- I said like, I don't want to be on medication because it's going to, it might take away my depression and anxiety. And maybe that's who I am. <laughs> like it's some superpower that is. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe this is going to change me too much. Like my personality, I'm going to be a different person. Like, that's been a big thing for me, is really realizing, like, no, it's not going to make me a different person. It's going to make me a healthy person, or at mm-hmm. least a healthier person. Like, yeah, why do I, why do I treat, like, I had, I had melanoma when I was in college. And so why do I treat, I don't look at every mole that has, like, a weird shape and dark coloration and be like, if I remove that mole, I might be less funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, people might look at the way I play Steve Reich's music differently if I take this mole off. It's like what? those aren't related. Those are those have yeah. nothing to do with each other. But but the I mean this this is a discussion around like in the autism community. I know like this like the idea that a mental health issue is something that needs cured. And yeah. I un- I understand the argument for. I mean, I don't have any children. I don't have anybody close to me that has autism. Um, I know Adam Slowinski's son, uh, Gie does. Um, and they just hearing him talk about this stuff has been really fascinating. Um, I, but I did some work with the Cleveland clinic when I was in college, um, with their, their applied behavior analysis program in autism. And that was, I mean, this was 20 years ago. So the research is way different now. I mean, this was the right. time when everybody thought vaccines caused autism. This was like when Jenny McCarthy said the thing and everybody blew up like, so, but it, but it, it's interesting. Like, I think talking to some families, they would say, if my son didn't have autism, like autism isn't who my son is, you know, like right. my son, autism is keeping my son from coming out, you know, but then I've also talked with Adam Slinsky and I see it's like where there's a, there's a way to nurture the specific situation in such that to use the things that you have as an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Like there's that, you walk that line of ableism really quick, really, really quickly in, in how we talk about mental health. And I'm in like, I have my own personal experience that if I could get rid of, dep- I mean, listen, there's month, there's easily one month out of every year where I just am in bed. It's usually August. That's when nothing's happening. And I like <laughs> school's not in session yet. So just gotten done. So I've got the postpartum depression of like mm-hmm. this month of crazy, awesome work. And then I go to go home and no one cares about me. None of my students are like, you all are back to like your universities. No one is just like picking my, no one's going to be like, Josh, can we grab coffee? Like <laughs> no one's doing that anymore. And it feels like now I, nobody needs me. And so for August, I usually just lay in bed, but bro, if I could get that out of me, are you kidding me? I, I want one more month of productivity and like general yeah. joy. Like I don't want to be on the couch having that be the thing that makes me feel good because that's it. When you're depressed, sleeping on the couch feels good. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. you know, it's a bit of a drug in and of itself. And 
So anyway, I'm, there's no question here, but I just like, those are, when you say your buddy depression, like that's a real thing. And I don't want that friend. Like it doesn't make yeah. me, it doesn't make me more interesting, you know? No. And I think that, um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I've talked to my wife about this a lot recently that like now having, uh, friends or colleagues that are in their twenties, mm-hmm. uh, and like seeing what they post on social media, I'm like, man, was I like that when I was that age? And then I realized, yes, I was. And <laughs> well, Matt, you were, from what I remember, you in 2013, you were a very quiet, polite, thoughtful person. I, I haven't seen you on social media other than your teaching stuff, but like, you don't strike me as that version of of a 20 there, year old. <laughs> there was there was a lot of like very much like I. I don't know. I feel like this sums this up that like, uh, I was, I was a smoker for like five years Mm -hmm. and I remember in grad school, I decided I wasn't going to smoke cigarettes anymore. I was going to smoke a pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So listen, (laughs) guilty. There's, I, I, I had never smoked cigarettes, but I do smoke cigars. Do you know Ayano Katoka by any chance? She, I was in school with her at Yale. She now teaches at UMass Amherst, and yep. she's like this three-foot-tall three Japanese monster behind any percussion instrument. But she and I would smoke cigars, and I just thought I was like the coolest thing in the world, you know, smoking a cigar with my friend Ayano, you know. But it was like, what are we doing? Like, you're, you're it just feels good because you're like, I'm smoking a pipe. That's what. Yeah, that's what. I'm cool. That's what James Joyce did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or whatever you know. <laughs> Smart people smoke pipes. Yeah. Well, trying to prove that um, this cool dude. <laughs> well, Matt, I I want to ask you just sort of a hypothetical here, and I got to say, like seeing seeing you sort of progress since 2013, and um, I see a lot of me in you in the way that I. Like, first of all, I feel like you and I are twins, so there's that. Like, <laughs> if you squint at this screen, we kind of look, you can't tell who's where. Um, but I, I, I hope people watch this and sort of get a sense of your honesty and your vulnerability. And I feel like you've always been someone for whom mental health hasn't been an excuse. It's always been a, like, this is part of the equation for me. And uh- I try. Well, you're just like, but it's, but this is, I admire people who are like, I have this big old problem and I'm trying to work through it. It's not your problem. It's mine, yeah. but you got to let me work through it in my own way. And I appreciate that about, about you, Matt. And um, there's somebody that was coming to mind as you were talking, a guy named Andrew Solomon. Do you know who that is? I don't think so. He's a writer, um, lecturer. I, I, I ran into him on the TEDx circuit. Um, so did a thing at the Met Museum, a TEDx thing, and he gave a lecture on mental health. And um, he is very forthright about his depression. And he talked a lot about the stigma around um, uh, medication and stuff. And he just, he sort of laid it out as a, like, I, I was in a room, full, he went to a dentistry conference and he was in a room full of dentists, right? And they're all talking about the latest toothpaste, the latest this and that. And he was talking to somebody about like Lexapro or something. And they sort of made this flippant, well, like, oh, well, we don't know anything about mental health. And it's just everybody, it's just an experimental quack thing. And he's like, hundred years ago, we were brushing our teeth with like sticks because, or we were chewing on sticks because it was good for your gums. Like, 
Give people sugar cane because that's what's good. Like, he's like, Lexapro is like brushing my teeth in the morning. Yeah. Like, I, I wake up and he's like, and if I find it doesn't clean my teeth, I'll take a new one. I'll take a different one. Like, you, you have different toothpaste. Like, why are we thinking of medic, mental health any differently than we think of brushing our teeth? And that right. includes things like psilocybin and mushrooms and LSD. Like, there's research around ketamine and all these other things that are like, you know, I, I do you know Neil Brennan? He's a comedian, um, and he talks a lot about mental health. He start, he he wrote for the Chappelle Show. Um, he's a white guy, and he talks about his depression. He did ayahuasca. I'm not here like advocating for any of that stuff because I haven't done it. But but they talk a lot about like like LSD and psilocybin as this like if you think of your brain as uh, ski slopes. Right. And like you wear them down. Like I, I am in the one ski slope I've been on for a while, you know, and then, yeah. And what these things do, which Lexapro doesn't do for me, but it basically is like putting a fresh coat of powder over all of the ski slopes. And so now you have a choice or the choice is easier to go down a different one. And just like we are kind of in the wild west of all this stuff. Like there is words. Yeah. We still don't know a lot, but I appreciate, I just wanted to say like, I think those folks, people who talk openly about this and sort of are, are forthright about, I, I just appreciate it. Um, I wanted to sort of ask you a hypothetical now moving yeah. forward before we wrap up. Um, I've already taken about 45 minutes of your time and you probably have, uh, some sleep to catch up on. It's even that you've been teaching since one in the morning. Um, what for you, what are your goals like knowing the last year um what are some things being a little bit more empowered with your own sort of career and what are some things a year from now like i've been shocked that i get this notification on facebook that's like one year ago today i was in trinidad yeah like a year so much is different about my life for you like what do you want to be different moving forward in the next year what are some sort of things that you've seen that are like yeah i'm not free to do this and this is what i want to do but i'm not doing it now I don't know. It's um, the the thing that I've really uh, realized is that, like I've said, the the, the pandemic has been very bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think anybody has any arguments about that. Um, like, I became functionally unemployed, and uh, my wife had COVID, and it's been awful. Um, the the thing that it made me do of just like when i was when i was working um even when days i had nothing booked like i spent hours a day practicing and i felt like people were always like i had colleagues i remember very clearly I met with one of them for dinner, like after the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, um, he plays with one of the orchestras that I sub for. And he was like, so what have you been up to? And I'm like, well, you know, I've been, I've been practicing like six hours a day every day. And I'm like, what have you been up to? And he's like, Oh, I haven't played in like four months. Like I haven't played since the season ended. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was like mind boggling to me. Mm. And now I'm kind of like, well, I don't want to compare people's lives, but like 
I also feel like maybe he's more whole of a per- more whole of a person than I was at that point. Um, I, don't, like, I don't know if that's a necessarily fair thing to assess to your assess of yourself, but I but I, I get what you're saying. I understand the the sentiment. Like he he didn't practice for like four months. He didn't touch six for four months, but like he you know went golfing and he spent time with his wife and mm-hmm. like did whatever. And I haven't had, uh, I realized during the pandemic, like I haven't had hobbies in like, mm. I don't know how long mm-hmm. I haven't had interests outside of playing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long because I always in my brain had this idea that if I if I, if I let off the accelerator for a minute, mm. like things would fall apart. And when I was forced to do that, I realized like one, things aren't going to fall apart. And two, like I've been missing out on a lot. Mm. Like I would spend like two weeks a month, like, away from home because I was like traveling in California or Oregon or Mm -hmm. Northern Arizona or whatever. Um, where I like, I wouldn't see my wife. I wouldn't see our pets. I wouldn't be able to like have dinner with my wife. And like during the pandemic, like I, I cook dinner every night and we're able to like sit down and have dinner and, um, I'll sit on the couch and watch TV with my cat or, Mm -hmm. um, I can have interests outside of playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what the, the ultimate, I think that if you would have asked me a, a year and a half ago, I would have said like my end goal with my life is like, I'm going to get a full-time orchestral job and I'm just going to do that until I retire. Mm-hmm. And I think that, now I'm just kind of like, I just want to enjoy the time I have. Like that's, um, that's something I kind of, that's something I like about doing this is that like playing, playing all the time and practicing all the time. Like I never walked away from it right Mm -hmm. like i would do a concert and i would come home and i would think about what happened what went well went went poorly um i would like okay well this is what i have to focus on when i practice next time or whatever Mm -hmm. um and i'll still do that when i play but like when i'm doing this like i don't do that Mm. like i i teach I finish teaching, I turn off my computer, I'm done until next time. Like I, in the I'll have to do prep for my classes before mm-hmm. the next time that I teach, but like I'm not I'm not stressing about my lesson with Danny this morning. Like, did I teach him those vowels correctly? Because like if I didn't, like I can fix it the next time I see him. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not i'm not stressed about it and this is a long way around to your question sorry but like i 
I think that in the future, at least for how I see it right now, like, I don't think I'm going to stop doing this. Like, it happens when I'm not doing anything else. Mm -hmm. Like, I spent weeks sometimes, like, I would have, like, weeks in my month where I didn't play at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if I'm just doing this and I'm also playing, but not, like, forcing myself so hard to get every single gig drive 27 hours through the mm-hmm. night to go play for something like i i think that this has forced me to see like i was not living in a healthy way physically mentally anything mm-hmm. and i think that i need to find a better balance well the that that work-life balance thing i mean it's i'm the wrong person to ask because i'm you know my life for the last 16 years has been in airports and train stations and whatnot in my car and this past year I've been with my wife all but like two weeks of the last year. First time in our entire life we've been together for 20 years. We've never been together that long. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff I don't want to give up of that. Like I'm not like as touring picks back up, it's like, uh-uh, nope. Like I want to be home more. I want to be with my family. I want to, you know, I don't like being in my car if I can avoid it, you know? And, but I think for me, the thing in the, in the, the thing you're you're sort of I, th- you don't need to have an answer now, but I think those like the idea that finding a hobby, something like that that maybe interests outside of music for me it was podcasting. Like I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast obsessively. I was listening to MMA podcasts. I was listening to comedian podcasts, and I was like, I just I don't know if somebody could if I had all the money in the world, I could I would just want to do that for a living. Like I yeah. like I love playing drums. I love teaching with the so guys i love all that stuff but just to do this so i was like well i i can do that for free i'm happy to lose money doing that that's fun that's what a hobby is it's something you lose money doing you know and it honest to god bro like when the when the pandemic happened and everybody's online being like artists we need you more now than ever and i was like nope 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 (laughs) because i've been dancing for you for 16 years and have been begging you to come to shows and now that you're locked in your living room and your Netflix account ran out, like, no, I'm going to go do podcasting. I'm not going to play for a month. There was a month I didn't touch a drum because yeah. I just was like, no, this is my time, mine. You know, I, I was super selfish right out of the gates. But to me, I think this is what doing this sort of thing makes when I do music that much more important to me because yeah. my brain, I've gotten to work these muscles. And I think for you, like, um, just before we wrap up, like this VIP kit, like where can folks learn more about that program? Like, and if, if they've got children of their own who might, somebody watches this and wants their kid involved, like how, how, how can they find out more about it? Well, where do so they need they to think, be in Be Beijing? If, if, if you want your kid to be involved, you, you'll probably be living in China. <laughs> um, strange times, but, man. People do weird things yeah. these days. Um, like that, that was uh that's kind of the thing like this is a complete sidetrack but like this is this is something i learned while i was you know starting to do this and like um and like doing my my toefl training like i don't know that people realize that like we we speak english obviously mm-hmm. and we are in a very privileged position that 
there are more second language speakers of English than there are first. Mm-hmm. Um, where, because English is the lingua franca of business and science mm-hmm. and a bunch of other things. So in the United States, like we don't study a second language necessarily. Yeah, not at all. I mean, um, in, in China, it's required by the Ministry of Education. Huh. Uh, and that's kind of partially why this business is so big. There's tons of um, Chinese uh, education companies that do things like this, that mm-hmm. hook up um, native speakers with kids. Um, because it's very important. You have to take English exams to go to secondary school. You have to take mm-hmm. English exams to get into college. You have to take English exams to graduate college. Um, because... They want their students to be able to be competitive on the world stage. Whereas Americans, we sit in this privileged position of already speaking the language, mm-hmm. which is lingua, lingua franca. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's an interesting thing. Um, I think that we should be learning Mandarin in school because it's like they have the two top languages are English and Mandarin. Mm-hmm. If you, if you learn Mandarin, then you, you could speak to s- probably half the people in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, my mom, uh, was a, my mom was a French and Spanish teacher and I wish that I would have learned if I'd have gotten more fluent in Spanish. I think I, that's also a language where like, if you go to Italy, Italian and Spanish are close enough where you can be like, you can get by. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and obviously Latin America and Spain, like there's just a, I, I, the amount of times I've been on a so gig and been like, lose Azul, like, like, like <laughs> I need a blue light. Like that's it. You know, I don't have, I have nothing else. Um, but no, it's it, that sort of, I don't know why I'm so flabbergasted by that stat that you gave that there are more ESL speakers than there are original English speakers. Like, of course, of course, like that makes total sense, but that's just, I don't know. Yeah, indicative of of English first native speakers are ignorance of how much English. I mean, English is the language that every airline pilot has to speak. Yeah, you know, like and it's it's the whole concept of lingua franca that like it's a shared language mm-hmm. where it's expected that like you know a businessman and man from Latin America and a businessman from Japan meet and they speak English instead of trying to trans transfer some other language mm. um it's it's like this neutral ground of of linguistics um which has been an interesting idea to think about well as you progress in this career i hope that we chat in 20 years and you are in a gold throne with those headphones on and you've built yourself <laughs> a vip kid palace and you are just <laughs> You're like a rapper. You got chains all around you. And you're just like, my name is Matt. Teacher Matt. Why my my closet isn't good enough? With one of the like, you'll have two of those dollar bill guns that just like shoot dollar bills into the air. <laughs> <laughs> no, your closet is lovely, Matt. I'm no, no there's no judgment on your charming closet. I'm just. I want you to be able to upgrade. I want you to upgrade to your you know your chalet and. Um, your dollar bill guns eventually. You know, yeah, so. I'll have a bigger display of slots. <laughs> well, 
Well, listen, man, I, I am very grateful for your time. I really enjoyed this. And my policy here is that the door is always open. So if there's something else that comes up, you want to chat, you're having a terrible day and you just want to scream at somebody on Zoom, <laughs> I'm here for you, bro. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> stay Stay healthy and safe. Have a good day teaching. And I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right. See you, buddy. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, Um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, want to learn more about the goings-on in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at Mango Chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango Chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, I hope.